Okay, welcome back to Understanding Childhood Cancer with Dr. Jeff. And I guess that means I'm Dr. Jeff. And today I'm going to talk about PET scans. PET scans. I saw a question on on a parent website and there was a particular parent there whose doctors were talking about doing a PET scan and the person said, does anyone know what a PET scan is? So I think I'll explain what a PET scan is. But before I do, let me remind you that I have a Facebook page. So if you go to Facebook and you go uh, to search for Understanding Childhood Cancer with Dr. Jeff, you'll find my Facebook page. Now, there's not usually a lot on the Facebook page, apart from telling you where to find this podcast, and sometimes it announces when a new episode is uploaded. But, you know, if you have some particular comment on a podcast, you could put it there somehow, I think. And if you had a particular episode or subject you wanted me to talk about, you could put it there now. But um, one thing I won't be doing is giving individual commentaries on particular patients. That's uh, not a good idea, good way to get sued, good way to confuse parents. Uh, and so I'm not going to be getting involved in doing that. I also don't really want to get involved in doing episodes on very obscure topics that it's going to take me six months to research Um because I'd rather sort of cover the stuff that's mainstream. and So anyway, let me know if you've got something in particular or a broad area you want me to cover, but not, um, you know, treatment of a six-and-a-half-year-old with a particular type of tumour in the particular spot and yada, yada, yada. Anyway, so today I'm going to talk about PET scans. So PET scans are one of those nuclear medicine scans. So, you know, there's a bunch of scans we do, you know, CAT scans, CT scan, MRI scans, and they're done in the x-ray department usually. And they look at the shape and size and position of tumours and the surrounding tissues and all of that. Now, there's another group of scans that are called the nuclear medicine scans. And in general, these usually involve the use of some radioactive isotope. So a tiny, tiny dose of some radioactive compound being injected into a vein usually. And then depending on what sort of isotope it is, it it is taken up by certain tissues and then a special camera can look at, well, what parts of the body are taking up the isotope. So for example, bone scan. For many years uh, we've been using bone scans. It's been around for decades. So a particular uh, radioactive compound, I think it's technetium, injected into the vein. And then some period of time later, it might be half an hour or two hours later, I don't know, they put the special camera over the patient and it looks for, well, which bones are taking up the bone scan agent. And if a bone takes up the tracer, that can mean that the bone has an infection in it, can mean the bones had a fracture, it could mean the bone has a tumour. And so we've done a lot of bone scans in uh, paediatric oncology over the years, and we continue to do so. So they're all part of what you call nuclear medicine. But PET scan in particular is the subject today. And PET stands for positron emission tomography. Tomography is that sort of uh, scanning technique, usually involves sort of sliding into something a bit like a tunnel, so like a CT scan is computed tomography and an MRI scan. All of those sorts of scans that end up giving you pictures of slices through a particular part of the body. I think that's what tomography means. 
But the interesting thing here is really this positron thing. So positrons. Okay, now geek alert, geek alert. I'm going to cover a bit of science here. I don't know if you remember from science in school, but atoms, remember atoms? They had a nucleus that had protons and neutrons. And then buzzing around the outside of every atom was something called an electron. An electron, right? Different atoms have different number of electrons. And electrons have a negative charge. Okay, so that's what we all used to know about the structure of the atom. Well, the physicists and, you know, the very brainy scientists eventually discovered that there's something that's the same size, I think, as an electron, but it's got a positive charge, and it's called a positron. Okay, so, and you make a positron with a particular technique where you make one particle collide with another particle, and then um, that makes for a positron being emitted. So positron emission tomography is just using, instead of using technetium, like in the bone scan, we use a different chemical that's radioactive. And in particular, it's a chemical where the particle it emits, the particle that the camera detects, is uh, a positron. Now, why do they want to use positrons instead of whatever other particle that the normal radioisotopes emit? Well, it's because the positron compounds can be made to participate in metabolic reactions. So let me explain. The most common PET scan that we do involves injecting into the vein a form of glucose. It's a form of glucose that's been modified so that it slowly emits positrons. So the glucose is sitting there and positrons are being emitted from it all the time. Okay. Now, one thing about tumours is many tumours use a lot of glucose. So, you know, glucose, it's in sugar and um, whenever we have our muscles active, we're using a lot of glucose in our muscles. Brain is very metabolically active, always using a lot of glucose. Well, tumours are very metabolically active and so a lot of tumours are taking up glucose into them faster than normal tissues. So, if we inject our special glucose that emits positrons into the vein, and then we wait a period of time, that glucose will circulate around the body. It'll be taken up by the brain and the kidneys, normal tissues that use a lot of glucose. But tumours often will take up the glucose. So if you imagine a tumour in a muscle of the leg, well, when we put the camera over the patient, we'll see the tumour taking up a lot of this glucose. And so the tumour will appear hot on the PET scan. So that's what a PET scan is. It's an injection of a radioactive compound, and it's usually glucose, and then a period of time later, putting the camera over the whole body to see what parts of the body are taking up glucose particularly strongly. And that'll tell us whether the tumour is hot metabolically, and it may tell us if there's other sites where the tumour has spread to. And that's a PET scan. Now, PET scans aren't available everywhere. It's a newer technology. Not every local hospital is going to have a PET scanner. 
Most of the time, PET scanners are going to be found in the big hospitals, the big academic hospitals or the big private hospitals, and there's some private practices around that might have a PET scanner as well. But they're not just routinely available every, every hospital you might turn up at. So now, just to go over again, how do we do a PET scan? Most of the time, like I said, it's going to be one of these glucose PET scans. And uh, in particular, it's called fluorodeoxyglucose. That's the modified form of glucose that's used. So commonly, PET scans are using an FDG PET. FDG. Now, there are other uh, PET scan agents that are used in particular situations. Uh, there's one that's called an FET PET scan. That's a modified form of tyrosine. That's an amino acid that is... Uh, emerging as a good one to use in brain tumours. And there are all sorts of other positron-emitting isotopes, glutamine, I think, various ones that are used in def different settings. But today I'll talk about the FDG PET, which is by far the most common one. So if a child's going to have an FDG PET scan, normally they'll be instructed not to eat or drink anything but water for several hours beforehand because we don't want the patient to eat a whole lot of sugar before the scan because that sugar will compete with the FDG that's going to be injected. So normally there'll be some guidelines for not eating or drinking beforehand, but often I think they're allowed to have water. Patient will uh, go along to the PET scan facility and usually they'll like the patient to be nice and calm and nice and warm because... If the patient is too cold, then there's certain parts of the body that contain something called brown fat. And brown fat will take up the FDG as well and confuse the picture. So usually they'd like the patient to be just sort of comfortably warm, not to come in off a cold street. They also like the patient to be nice and calm because patients that are too anxious, they can have a lot of muscle activity if they're tense and those muscles can take up the FDG. Plus, I think if they're tense, they can get more uptake in the brown fat as well, something to do with adrenaline. So they'll usually want the patient to be calm and sort of warm and fasted, apart from a bit of water, I think, and then they'll be ready to go. So the next thing that'll happen will be they'll inject this FDG into a vein. Now, they might have to put a needle in a vein to do that or in oncology often patients have central lines and they might be able to use the central line. Anyway they'll inject the radioactive glucose and don't worry about the radiation dose it's usually a tiny tiny dose of radiation but it's a very specialized form of radiation and then usually they'll go back to the calm room and have a period of just sitting and not doing too much and not moving too much and I don't know how long it is if it's an hour or two or four but it depends on the particular situation. But after a period of time, then they'll get the patient back and put them on the scanner. And the scanner probably looks a bit like a CT scanner or an MRI scanner. You know, one of those beds that you lie on and you're encouraged to lie perfectly still and the bed slides up through the scanning machine and it takes pictures of the whole body and looks at, well, what's taking up positrons? And that's pretty much what happens in a PET scan. Now, they might do a blood sugar level. I forgot to mention that. They might do a blood sugar level at the start just to check where the patient's blood sugar is because that influences how the FDG will be affected and how they interpret it. 
And that's pretty much how you do a PET scan. Now, in some situations, they might do the scanning once or twice or three times. There's different systems for different situations. There are some tumours that take up the tracer early and then they excrete it slowly and all sorts of situations. But that's basically what happens. And then pretty much that's it. patient can go and have something to eat and then the nuclear medicine team will put all the images together and analyse them and come up with a report. Now, most of the time, by the way, the PET scanner actually includes a CT scanner. So the patient gets a CT scan, just like in the x-ray department, and a PET scan at the same time. And that's good because then they can do something called co-registering. So if a CT scan shows a lump in the leg, for instance, then they can also look at the glucose uptake exactly in that lump. So it's usually a PET CT that's all done together. Now, often the quality of those CT scans isn't as good as a a true X-ray department CT scan. It might be a lower energy CT scan. Not always, I suppose. There's new technologies, but the quality of the CT scan mightn't be quite as good as the one you get in the X-ray department. And, you know, they might not actually give the dye injection that you have with the one in the X-ray department. But anyway... Beyond that, there's also something now called the PET MRI scan. So you get an MRI scan and a PET scan done at the same time. Now, that's really newer technology, and not many units will have a PET MRI scan, but that would be a really good thing to have. And one day when I find a a super billionaire donor who wants to buy one for my unit, well, that would be very nice. We could have a PET MRI scan and then because that would allow you to look at the uptake of the glucose in even smaller areas, particularly in the brain and elsewhere in the body, a PET MRI. So I wouldn't say it's commonly available. So what are some of the uses of PET scan? So first off, we might use a PET scan at the initial phase of diagnosing a patient with cancer. So we may have determined that a child has a particular sort of cancer, And as part of the workup, we'll do a CT scan or an MRI scan and, you know, all sorts of things. And a PET scan might be part of that procedure. Now, the PET scan, for instance, might be to look at the main primary tumour to see how hot is the tumour. And that'll be useful because then when we give our drugs, we can repeat the PET scan and see if it becomes cold. The PET scan at the initial diagnostic phase might also be used to look at the rest of the body. So we may know, for instance, that a patient has a a lump in the neck and it's Hodgkin's disease, for instance. So the PET scan can be used to look for other deposits of Hodgkin's disease elsewhere in the body. And we might find some lumps in the lymph nodes in the chest or in the abdomen, for instance, or with a bone tumour or a muscle tumour a PET scan might be used to look for any evidence that the tumour has spread away from that primary site to some other position, for instance, in the bones or in the lymph glands, elsewhere away from the body. So in the initial phases of diagnosing and working up a child with cancer, it's to look at the primary tumour and to look for any evidence of spread of the tumour to other locations. Now, other scans are done to look for spread, of course. It might be a CT scan of the chest is performed, Um, 
might be a bone scan that's performed, might be a bone marrow test that's performed. But a PET scan might be one of the things you use in that situation. When I think about which tumours would we do a PET scan on at initial diagnosis to look for spread, I guess we would usually do it in my unit in the bone tumours, so Ewing sarcoma, osteogenic sarcoma. We would often do it in rhabdomyosarcoma. We would often do it in Hodgkin's disease and certain other lymphomas. I guess we wouldn't normally do it in neuroblastoma because MIBG scan is usually the study of choice in that situation, but occasionally we would if the patient's neuroblastoma happened to be MIBG negative, which isn't very common but does occur, then we might do a PET scan. We wouldn't usually do it in the brain tumours, looking for spread of brain tumours, and we wouldn't normally be doing it in leukaemia. I don't think we'd often do it in Wilms tumour, but we might. So I guess they'd be the main ones. It'd be with the sarcomas of bone or muscle or soft tissue and with the lymphomas. They'd be the main ones. Now the next situation where we do a PET scan would be to look at the response to treatment. So if the child's been diagnosed with some form of cancer and they've had a PET scan at the start of treatment and then they embark on therapy with chemotherapy drugs or maybe with radiotherapy, well, we can do another PET scan later on to see if the drugs have had an effect on the tumour. So suppose the tumour in the leg was very hot on the PET scan, well then we can give our drugs and then after a period of some weeks we can repeat the PET scan and see if the tumour has become cold, less metabolically active, and that would indicate that the drugs are doing something good. Now, we wouldn't just do PET scan. We would feel the tumour and see if it's gotten smaller. We might do MRI or CT scans as other tests. But a PET scan might be one extra test to do to look at whether the drugs are achieving anything. Again, not automatically routine in every situation, but it is emerging as something that's part of the arsenal of tests that we can use to see if the drugs are working. By the way, the, the standard measure that people use for that glucose uptake in the tumour, when I say it's hot or it's cold, they actually have a, a number that measures how much the glucose is being taken up by the tumour. It's called the SUV, uh, Standardised Uptake Variable, I think. Anyway, the SUV, that's what the nuclear medicine people report as the measure of glucose uptake in a tumour. And so a tumour might have an SUV of 10 at initial diagnosis and after some chemotherapy we might see the SUV has dropped to 2 and that would indicate that the tumour is using glucose less and therefore you would hope that's a good sign that the drugs are doing some good. Well another situation where we might use PET scan would be after the end of treatment. For instance a patient has been treated for say Hodgkin's disease and they had a PET scan at diagnosis and that showed where the Hodgkin's disease was they had chemotherapy and maybe radiotherapy and we monitored whether the Hodgkin's disease went cold with PET scan. Well, at the end of treatment, we might do a PET scan just to document that the patient is in remission. That is, that we can't see any areas taking up the PET scan agent. Well, another approach that might be used, and I wouldn't say this is at all routine, but it might be that PET scan develops a role off treatment 
checking for any sign that the cancer has grown back again. So, for instance, after the end of treatment, we're often doing scans on patients three months later or six months later, and we might do that for a year or two or three after the end of treatment. Well, a PET scan might be a way to look for any sign that the cancer has grown back again. Again, I wouldn't say that that is routine in every unit, and I wouldn't say that uh, it was the norm, but it is something that's emerging as a useful tool. Next situation I want to discuss where PET scan might be used is those situations where we can see a lump, but we're not sure what the lump represents. So I'm not so much talking about a new patient who presents with a lump. In that situation, we're normally going to end up getting a biopsy and finding out, well, what is that lump? I'm talking more here about the situation where we've treated a child for cancer and perhaps we've seen the main cancer decrease in size or perhaps we haven't or perhaps we've done an MRI scan and we've seen it reduce in size significantly but perhaps there's some residual abnormality that's left behind and we're trying to work out, well, what is that residual abnormality? Does it represent cancer that has survived the treatment, which would be bad? Or does it represent some sort of scar tissue left behind or dead cancer that's going to just slowly fade away over the years? What, what exactly is going on at that site? And oftentimes just going in and biopsying it isn't a good idea. Sometimes it'll be major surgery to get to it. It might be dangerous to try to operate to get to it. And sometimes when you biopsy an area of potential scar tissue, pathologists can have great difficulty determining, well, look, is there any cancer left or not? So in these situations, a PET scan might be used. So in particular, for instance, rhabdomyosarcoma is an example. It's a, a tumour that, uh, that I've done a podcast on, so go and listen to that. But rhabdomyosarcomas can respond well to chemotherapy and radiotherapy, but sometimes we can still see a residual sort of abnormality where the tumour was. We can be left wondering, well, what is that residual abnormality? Is there a deposit of rhabdomyosarcoma that survived our treatment and is sitting there and potentially able to grow back again and cause a relapse, which would be terrible? Or is that residual abnormality, is it scar tissue that's been left behind as the tumour died and is it dead tumour that's slowly going to fade away and they're hard things to work out and like I said a biopsy can just confuse everyone and it's putting the child through another operation so a PET scan might be a good way to have a look at that lesion and try to get a clue what's going on and if the PET scan showed that it was you know, red hot with a high SUV and high glucose uptake, well, that might be a reason for concern and it might be a reason to go in and actually biopsy it or even cut it out or, you know, consider some form of further therapy. But on the other hand, if the PET scan came back and it was cold, so it wasn't taking up glucose, that might be reassuring. It might make you think, well, maybe maybe it's just scar tissue or something and maybe we can just monitor the situation and keep an eye on it and not rush in and do something. 
And it might be that you say, fine, we'll do the PET scan again in three months and we'll do the MRI scan in a few months and, and try to keep an eye on it. So that's a, a particular situation where PET scan might be used. So in that situation where you're not sure, is that residual lump there, is it tumour or is it something else? And in brain tumours, um, that's the particular situation where we've taken to doing something called an FET PET scan. The problem with using glucose isotopes is that the brain uses so much glucose all the time that the background brain is taking up glucose and it's hard to tell tumour from brain sometimes. Well, there's this particular compound called FET. It's a tyrosine. Brain tumours happen to use a lot of tyrosine for some reason. And if we do an FET PET scan, then we can pick brain tumour from normal brain. It's an emerging technology. I wouldn't say it's mainstream yet, but it might be available in certain academic centres. Now, the final situation where we've been performing some FDG PET scans over the years is quite uncommon situation, but there is a condition called neurofibromatosis. And that's a genetic condition where children have multiple sort of birthmarks. They're called cafe au lait spots. And it's a complicated condition. But one of the things that you can have happen in neurofibromatosis is the development of something called a plexiform neurofibroma. Now, a plexiform neurofibroma isn't cancer, technically. But plexiform neurofibromas can grow slowly and slowly and can become quite big and can cause a lot of trouble. So plexiform neurofibroma is a problem in its own right. But one of the things that can happen with plexiform neurofibroma is that we can see an area of the tumour that changes into something that is a malignant cancer, something called a malignant peripheral nerve sheath tumour. MPNST. That's a malignant cancer that can develop in this plexiform neurofibroma. And if that develops, we very much need to diagnose it and get onto it and operate on it as soon as possible. So in situations where we are worried about an area of a plexiform neurofibroma, then a PET scan can be useful to try to work out, is there an MPNST developing within the plexiform neurofibroma? Or does it all look like standard plexiform neurofibroma? It's a very specialised area of interpretation of PET scans and it's really one for the experts. I just mention it as a, a final situation where we're performing PET scans. Now, by the way, PET scans are done in other situations apart from cancer. Um, but I'm not going to talk about them because I don't really understand them and haven't got too much to say about it. But not every PET scan is done looking at cancer. Anyway, I'll leave it there. That's my explanation of PET scans. But remember that MRI scans and CT scans are the best scans for showing you the shape of a tumour and the location of a tumour and where it sits in relation to nerves and veins and other things. But a PET scan is telling you something about the metabolic activity within the tumour not so much the shape of the tumour. And we can put all those scans together and get some very useful information. Anyway, I'll leave it there. Thank you again for listening to my podcast. Remember to go to the Facebook page. Look for Understanding Childhood Cancer with Dr. Jeff. Go to the Facebook page. Leave a comment if you like. Leave a suggestion. Tell me what I'm doing wrong. 
And if you want to go to the iTunes store and leave a review there too, well, that'd be nice. Give me some stars if you're finding these podcasts helpful. But for now, that's it. And I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.